One of the most common images in the Bible used to describe someone who is trusting in God uh, is something that is steadfast, something that is immovable, something that is firm, held firm regardless of the circumstances. So, for instance, there's the image in Psalm 1 of a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season and its leaf does not wither. Psalm also says, however, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Or there's the image in Psalm 125 of a mountain. There the psalmist says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And of course, probably the most famous one, there's the image Jesus uses in Matthew 7 about a house that is built on the rock. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, I say that because that is the heart behind this current preaching series we're doing on the Apostles' Creed, a series we're calling Rooted. Because my desire for you is to be that evergreen tree to be that immovable mountain, to be that wisely built house that can withstand the storms of life. Every wave of suffering, every wind of doctrine, every flood of sorrow. That's my desire for you. I know that's your desire for yourself, and that's why we're looking at the creed, the oldest and simplest expression of what it is that Christians have believed and confessed for almost 2,000 years. I believe that each line of the creed represents sort of a block in the foundation of our house, or to change the image, a tentacle of the root that goes down deep to give you rootedness in Christ in an ever-shifting world. That's why we're doing this series, and last week we looked at the line that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Today, we're going to look at the lines, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Last week I joked, well, welcome to Christmas in September. <laughs> this week, apparently, it's welcome to Good Friday uh, in the beginning of October. It's interesting, the creed jumps from Jesus' birth to his death, from the beginning of his earthly life and ministry to the end. And some people have actually been bothered by this. They've complained that there's nothing else in the creed about Jesus' earthly life between his birth and his death. Nothing about his teachings, nothing about his miracles, nothing about the perfection of his life. But brothers and sisters, Jesus himself said that the reason that he was born was to die. In John 12, 27, when the time for his death had arrived, Jesus said, Now is, is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Likewise, the scripture passage we preached last week in Hebrews also jumped from his birth to his death, interestingly. There it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was born to die. His main purpose in coming to earth was to die for the sins of the world. The fact is, the death of Jesus Christ is the heart of the heart of Christian faith. It is the holy of holies. It is the center of the center, so much so that the Apostle Paul would say to the Corinthian church, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
So, brothers and sisters, as we've been going through this creed, we're trying to understand the heart of what Christians believe. This, this is it. <laughs> if you want to know the heart of the heart, you have to go to the cross of Jesus. Yes, I understand it is a stumbling block for some. It is folly to others. But you cannot know the Christian faith without the preaching of Christ crucified. That's where we're going to go today. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried? My hope, friends, my hope is that every one of you will leave today saying with the apostle, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My prayer is that you would not only not be ashamed of the cross, you would actually boast in it because its meaning to you is even more precious than it ever was before. In that hope, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Our passage from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11, a couple verses, then we'll jump to 19 to 25. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Lord, we pause here, not out of formality, but to acknowledge that our help comes from you. Our help to be hearers of the word, and my help to be a proclaimer of the word. And I do ask, Lord, that you would help me not to proclaim myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and myself as your servant for Jesus' sake. May the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. To be seated, please. Theologians have summed up everything that we're going to talk about today. That is, Jesus' suffering, death, and burial. They've summed it all up under one heading. That is his humiliation. It's humiliation. To be fair, everything that comes next, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his session at the right hand of God, that's his exaltation. So these two comprise the two states of Christ's incarnate life, humiliation and exaltation. Today, we're looking at the humiliation of the Son of God. In his book, The Crucified King, Jeremy Treat writes, From the cradle to the cross, the life of Jesus is clearly one of humiliation. That's an interesting word, isn't it, to sum up, sum up these things that Christ did for us? Humiliation. 
Webster's Dictionary defines it as to reduce to a lower position in one's own eyes or others' eyes, to make ashamed or embarrassed. We all know what humiliation feels like. It's something we avoid at all costs. When was the last time you truly felt humiliated? Mine's pretty easy because it comes from recent memory. It was Friday night at the church's birthday party when the whole room humiliated me for cutting the cake wrong. (laughs) Apparently, there were audible groans, yells as I made the first cut. I'm kidding. I, I don't embarrass that easily. Plus, you're all wrong, but but there's not many things that we avoid more strongly than being humiliated. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing, though. Jesus chose it willingly. Indeed, Jesus' whole earthly life was one long series of self-chosen humility, of willing condescension, of stooping down into the worst humiliation you and I can ever imagine. Each of the words in the creed today, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. These are like successive steps deeper and deeper into Christ's humiliation. And today, what I want to do is I want to ask why. Why was Christ humiliated? And what does it mean for those who profess these words in the creed? So what I want to do, I want to look at each phrase and see what it means to believe together in the Son humiliated. First of all, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Many have wondered, maybe you wondered this, many have wondered how in the world Pontius Pilate's name ended up in the creed. Remember the first time? Like, why, why is this dude in the creed? Interesting, no other person who is not God is mentioned in the creed except the Virgin Mary and Pontius Pilate. That's an odd couple. Mary is famous for being the mother of Jesus. Pilate is famous for being the murderer of Jesus. Mary gave him life. Pilate took it away. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor placed in charge of the region of Jerusalem. He's there to collect taxes and to keep order on behalf of Rome. And only Rome could execute criminals. So when the Jewish leaders wanted to execute Jesus, they had to bring him to stand trial before Pontius Pilate. And if you read the story, although Pilate did not find anything in Jesus worthy of death, and even though his own wife told him to have nothing to do with this innocent man, wives are always right, right? Yet because Pontius Pilate was a coward, because he was a crowd pleaser, he gave the order to execute Jesus by means of crucifixion. Friends, I think Pilate is here in the creed to emphasize the historicity of what we profess. Jesus was a real historical man who was condemned to death by a real historical Roman prefect. It's an historical anchor that confirms that God really did enter into human history. And it emphasizes yet again, friends, that Christianity is not a set of principles. Christianity is fundamentally about the person of Jesus. The person who lived in first century Palestine, who was crucified on a Roman cross, who rose again to hundreds of witnesses. This is what has been passed down to us as of first importance. God really did personally enter into the mess of human history. Remember, sisters, the most important word in this phrase is not Pontius Pilate. The most important word is suffered. Jesus suffered. That means God suffered. 
And this is astonishing. If you were looking for proof that God really did become a human being, it's not just that he stood before the historical Pontius Pilate. It is that he suffered. Because what is more human than to suffer? Nietzsche said to live is to suffer. Suffering is a ubiquitous part of being human in a fallen world. But friends, the wonder of the gospel is that God did not stand outside of human suffering. He entered into it. He took it upon himself. There's something in our world, perhaps you've heard of it or, or known about it, but didn't know the title of it. It's called protest atheism. Have you heard of this? This is those who refuse to believe in God, not because they are unconvinced of the intellectual arguments per se, but because they are unsettled by the existential experience of suffering and evil in the world. To them, how could there be a God or how could he be good if we are allowed to suffer in all these ways? Unbelief then is like a, an act of protest against God for the sufferings of the world. And I'm sympathetic. I understand it. But friends, the phrase suffered under Pontius Pilate means, in the words of Dorothy Sayers, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. Or in the words of the Anglican pastor, John Stott, one of my most favorite quotes of all time. So I said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. Listen, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Sa continues, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Sock concludes, our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. That's so powerful. Listen, friends, I do not know why you have suffered the way you have. I know you have because you're a human being. I don't know why there is so much suffering in the world. Nora, my eight-year-old, just asked me this week, why can't God just take corona away? I said, I don't know. But I know that to confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate is to believe that God humiliated himself. That is, he humbled himself 
to share in your sufferings and mine. To know the curses and the miseries of the fallen world just as you do. He has exacted nothing from you that he has not exacted from himself. As the Heidelberg Catechism says in response to the question, what do you understand by this word, suffered? It says that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. He took it all. Friends, Jesus doesn't just share in your sufferings and that's it. As comforting as that would be. He actually came to do something about it. Which leads to the next phrase. Was crucified, dead, and buried. Brothers and sisters, crucifixion as a means of capital punishment was all about humiliation. The goal wasn't just to kill you, but to humiliate you in the process. It was a public disgrace reserved for slaves and the worst of criminals. No Roman citizen was allowed to endure such degradation. Surely this is what the Apostle Paul was referring to in Philippians 2 when he writes that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. That's because Jesus was executed like a common slave. But think about it. Jesus's, the whole of Jesus' death was humiliation. Humiliation of a public trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, where he was condemned as a heretic and a blasphemer in front of everyone, people he knew. Imagine God being convicted of blasphemy. It's the humiliation of the public sentencing before Pilate. He was dragged before the crowd so they could once and for all reject him in favor of an actual criminal, Barabbas. To Jesus, they said, crucify him. The humiliation of being paraded through the city streets, carrying his own cross, enduring the mocks and the insults, being stripped naked, crowned with thorns, publicly crucified for all the world to see and deride you. Friends, crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment because you die slowly, not from the pain, but from asphyxiation as it becomes harder and harder to pull yourself up on nail-pierced hands and feet just to breathe. It was designed to be that bad in order to be a deterrent to any other would-be rebels who would dare to set themselves against the mighty Roman Empire. The scriptures confirm the humiliation of crucifixion. Hebrews 12:2. Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. Galatians 3.13, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It was a cursed, shameful, humiliating death. And the question is, why? Why did it have to be so humiliating? Because, brothers and sisters, sin is humiliating. For Jesus to become sin for us, he had to experience the full weight of its humiliation. Let me ask you, what is the first emotion that fallen human beings felt after they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden? It was shame. It was shame because sin is humiliating, and the only thing you want to do is to run and hide and cover yourself from the embarrassment and shame. And friends, we've been hiding ever since. To be a fallen human being is not only to know suffering, it is to know shame. 
because each one of us is bitterly acquainted with things that we have thought or said or done that are deeply shameful. In some cases, we're the only ones who know, and we would do absolutely anything to keep it covered up. We've been hiding ever since the garden. We've been looking for some way to cover our humiliation. Friends, that is where Hebrews 10 tells you that the only person that can actually cover your shame has come. And his name is Jesus. The writer says the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, it can't do it. It doesn't work. He said the Old Testament priests made sacrifice after sacrifice, but verse 11 says they could never take away sins. They could never take away the shame. They could never cleanse our conscience. But verse 12 continues, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love this. Notice all the contrasts between the Old Testament priests and Jesus. They stand daily in the temple because their work is never done. It's always another sacrifice. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God because his redeeming work is done. It was finished at the cross. They had to offer repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over, which could never deal with our sins. But Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice, one and done, that perfected for all time all those who belonged to him. The priest had to enter the old way into the holy place, behind the curtain that separated sinners from a holy God. But this passage says Jesus has made a new and living a way through his own flesh. That is, just as his body was torn for us on the cross, so the temple the curtain was torn into, giving sinners access to the most holy place. For Jesus is the only way to have your shame covered, to have your conscience cleansed, Nothing else can do it. He is the only way to have confidence as you approach Sunday. That is when you come to worship. When you stand before a holy God. Verse 22 says, you can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. The passage says, he is the only way you can have confidence as you approach the day. That is the day when you will stand before Christ when he returns to judge the living and the dead, which verse 25 says is drawing near. The point is, whether it's Sunday or the day, in both cases, you can approach the presence of God, whether by faith or by sight, with nothing to fear. Because the one sacrifice of Christ has cleansed you for all time. Friends, this is it. Jesus was humiliated so you would never have to be humiliated in his presence. He was ashamed so that your shame could be covered by his blood. He sits in heaven so that you can stand clean in the presence of God. So the question is, what sacrifice are you relying on to deal with a guilty conscience? We are all trying to cover ourselves. What are you using? Are you relying on the cover of moralism? You're just saying, I'll work harder. I'll just work harder. I'll be kinder. I'll be better. I'll be more just. I'll do as much good to try to tip the scales and outweigh the bad. Are you relying on the cover of comparison? It says, yeah, I've done some pretty bad things, but not as bad as that guy. 
that, that guy's a real mess. At least I'm better off than him. Are you relying on the cover of deflection? Do you avoid your own shame by turning it on to others? What one author I read this week calls fault finders and finger pointers. Do you distract yourself from your own sin by focusing on the sin of others? Point is, friends, none of these covers work. None of these sacrifices will work. They can't get deep enough. They can't deal with the actual problem. The only sacrifice that can take away sins and cleanse the conscience is the cross of Christ. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He was humiliated, so you would never have to be when you stand before God. As we talked about this, this, this creed, the Apostles' Creed, grew up organically in the first three centuries, precisely when the time when the church was most oppressed. That means your brothers and sisters who first confessed these words most likely did so under the threat of intense persecution. And it always made me wonder, why in the world were Christians viewed as such a threat? What threat did they pose to the empire that they tried to wipe them out? I think part of the answer is this. That Christians, precisely because of what they believed, precisely because of the gospel they profess, they were not beholden to two of the most dominant emotions that the empire uses to keep you in line. That's shame and fear. Shame and fear are such powerful motivators. And yet here is a whole community of people who are being set free from shame, who believe that their sins are forgiven, who believe that they are the beloved children of God. Here are people who are being set free from fear, who aren't even afraid of death because Jesus has taken the sting away. Here are people who are saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think there's nothing more threatening than someone who is not ruled by fear or shame. Because that is someone who is truly free. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you, you who confess this creed as your hope, what would it look like for you to live free of shame, uninhibited by fear? Can you imagine that life? I can. I'm here to tell you this is what you have in Christ. He descended down to lift you up out of shame. He was humiliated that you might be covered. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to look squarely at the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know it is... It is a stumbling block to so many. It is, it is the height of foolishness to so many. Yet, Lord, give us eyes to see it the way you see it, as the power of God unto salvation, as the, the very thing that has cleansed us to the core of our being. Lord, we bring our shame to you. We're tired of hiding. We bring the things before you that maybe only you know, and we ask you to wash it clean. Take it away. Give us the confidence to stand boldly in your presence, knowing that our shame has been removed because you took it, Jesus. We praise you, Lord, with all of our hearts, and we thank you. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen.